Tea Time is a podcast of the Unite Leadership Collective, hosted by Tim Ullman and Jack Caliber. The ULC envisions a future in which all congregations fully equip the priesthood of all believers through world-class leadership development at the local level. Lead Time taps into biblical wisdom for practical solutions to today's burning issues. Each podcast confronts real-time struggles facing the local church in a post-Christian culture. Step into the action with the ULC at uniteleadership.org. This is Lead Time. Welcome to Lead Time. Tim Allman here. Jack Kalberg is taking a day. He's taking a personal day. I honestly don't know where Jack is today, but I get to hang out with my uh, good friend, partner in the gospel from across the country, a man who has blessed our team um, here at Christ Greenfield, blessed the Unite Leadership Collective in general, has been a guest a couple times in the American Reformation podcast, co-host, but not. This is his inaugural journey into the Lead Time family, and uh, his name is uh, Reverend Matt Peoples. Matt, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, man. I'm excited to be here with you guys on lead time. This is going to be so good. So Matt has been in the parish, knows what it's like to be in a congregation, leading God's people. He's a serial church planner, and uh, we're going to be talking about some of his entrepreneurial work in caring for churches, helping to fan into flame a movement, a network of churches who plant churches. Uh, Leadership development is a conversation we're going to talk about today. Leadership pathway is something Matt and I are are very uh, geeked out about, and uh, he has this missional pathway and how to read the Bible curriculum that I think is going to really, really rock your world today, listener. This is a fantastic day. So Matt, you have, uh, you've been around a, a bit on the East Coast. This is why we didn't, oh, yeah. we didn't get a hangout. Maybe an opening question. Uh, a, a lot of our church body in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod is, is kind of Midwest. I was mm-hmm. just in Omaha, had yeah. some good Omaha steak, you know, there's every, every five, miles or so, probably less than that, you know, every square mile or so, it seems like you bump into a, a Lutheran congregation, but oh, man. a lot of your, your life has been shaped by ministry on the East coast. Would you define yeah. what it was like as a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod pastor to do and to start ministries, namely on the East coast? Yeah. You know, I started, uh, started church in Tennessee. So that was my first experience and did like six months in Arkansas. And that was awesome. But, you know, when you start getting out to those edges and you don't have a Lutheran church every couple miles, uh, then you really learn more about why you believe what you believe when it comes to things like sacramental theology. Um, But the really cool thing is, especially in church planting, you learn Lutheran theology is the best theology for reaching the lost. Um, We hold on so tightly to grace. You know, we forget that the sacramental nature is very tangible. And people need tangible things. And on top of that, we have this hidden and revealed God doctrine that we always forget about that allows us to speak when God speaks, be silent when God's silent, and be okay with the tension. And so when you come in with that and all you have to do is kind of place word and sacrament in, it's also this incredibly contextualizable bucket. And so when I'm stepping into a context and all I have to bring is word and sacrament and everything else can be contextual. It's, it's a game changer. The problem is we don't often lean into that. And so on the East Coast, what I learned is if I lean into that, then man, you're going to see massive change. And so the church plant side was really fun. I went up to New Jersey and then trained some guys to church plant, but then also did a revitalization. And I kind of got to see the pain points of what happens when we get too stuck in the box. You know what I'm saying? And we get stuck into a model that is is really great if, like you said, you've got a Lutheran church on every corner, but a model that 
isn't as strong if you're in a place where you've got less Lutheran churches in the district than you do in somebody's circuit, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it's, uh, it's, it is the best, dude. I've been talking yeah. about this for a long period of time. Lutheran theology, when lived out hospitably, charitably, with with grace, it, we we like you say the hidden reveal God. I hadn't I hadn't really gone into the evangelical nature of that, but I mean, what are people's biggest prom, uh, problems with the faith? Right? It's it's problem of evil, the problem of suffering and pain. Um, you know, trying to move into things that God just doesn't say, but He's revealed enough for us in Jesus Christ. So why don't we just lean into training people to know the macro story of which we're a part, God's grand story of love. And then lead them to winsomely talk about the center point of all of human history, which is the person and work of Jesus who stepped into the problem of suffering and pain and bore yeah. it all the way to, to the point of death on a cross. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. How does Lutheran theology um, kind of mirror or mingle with or intersect with kind of the grand narrative of Scripture? I think this is a good intersection mm-hmm. point, not only for engaging, engaging uh, pre-Christians, but also for those in the wider evangelical yeah. space today, Matt. I would say Lutheran theology is obvious. So if you just start with the Bible and you read the Bible, you're not doing a lot of theological gymnastics, for lack of a better term, to get to explain why you believe what you believe and why you have the theological points that you have. You can open up scripture and Lutheran theology just makes sense. And I think that is stepping into a post-Christian culture. That is one of the biggest assets we have because Post-Christian culture, you don't, you don't have people that have an institutional memory of church. Uh, so they don't have this assumption of like, this is what we believe. Post-Christian culture, what most people forget too, is we're in what's called, okay, this is what I call. So I haven't written a book yet, so it's not famous, right? But this is what I call the choose your own adventure culture. Hmm. And what that means is we don't have this consistent moral thread that everybody agrees on, Right. We're in a radically individualistic, radically pluralistic culture, Um, and we're in a culture that is more diverse than probably any culture in history. Um, Mm. And that might be a reach, but I I don't think so. So we're we're yeah yeah we're leaning into a unique space, and in that space, you can look at me and say, "You shouldn't live with your girlfriend." And for sake of this conversation, I don't have a girlfriend. I don't live with her, but. (laughs) If Tim looks at me and says, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. I say, well, hey, that's great in your moral framework, but in my moral framework, this is fine. And so what happens is you don't have that that consistent point in the middle that you can agree upon to be able to have the moral conversations. And so you have to be able to start with scripture and you have to be able to find the aspects of the gospel that connect with the pain points people are feeling. And so Mm -hmm. like, most Christians are going to lean into their theological tradition, lean into assumptions they think you should agree with, and they're going to lean into a forensic understanding of the gospel, meaning it's that courtroom narrative, right? And so they're going to say, well, you're a sinner. Well, you, you can't say I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner in your moral framework, but not mine. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, we, we don't know how to share the gospel because we know this one very narrow understanding of how the gospel operates, right? But Lutheran theology believes that the gospel is simple, but it's not simplistic. And scripture shows you the gospel is simple, but it's not simplistic. And the gospel has different aspects that it can lead with 
that actually meet the pain points of the culture that people are in. And so in a post-Christian culture, you have to start in scripture, but you also have to start with your story and you have to start with the pain points people are feeling. Yep. And so while I'm not going to feel that forensic justification pain point, the pain point I am going to feel is the pain point of having to build my own identity from scratch, which yes, is a pain point, and then live up to that identity I've created, right? Mm. In which I will fail, just like I would yeah. fail if you gave me the framework I'm supposed to live into. And so, you know, if we're able to start from that point or whatever point the culture's dealing with, then that's how we're able to engage in a post-Christian culture. And I think Lutheran theology is just uniquely wired to do that well, if we can understand how to do that well. I've been, that's so well said, bro. Um, I've been interested to kind of watch the wider landscape of the LCMS. So on this podcast, we, we can talk about the culture of the LCMS. Yeah. Is what we do <laughs> a fair amount. Um, and, and it's interesting that as the culture goes in a markedly secular, you know, direction, even pre-pagan, some have, have said, um, there's, there's no gods kind of, mm -hmm. you know, agnostic to atheist. Um, and I don't think maybe they believe there's a God. It's a little more agnostic, but they just don't consider him too, too frequently that then the pull of many in the LCMS is toward, toward pietism, toward Lutheran pietism, toward kind of virtue signaling. We're not that. And so we're going to, and then I think the conversation like immediately Matt orients around the liturgy. And how well yeah. we how well we do the liturgy. I, I see this coming up, and I, I just think it's it's a conversation that needs to be had. The contemporary, traditional, the liturgy, the and I'm a I'm a liturgical guy, man. I, I think you are. I, I think the Lutheran liturgy is fantastic. It's mm -hmm. a great handle, but people are so far in our culture from having that conversation. Like they don't. They're so far from stepping a foot into any of our more traditional worship spaces. They're not. They're not going to be there. So it just. Our move toward pietism just comes off as kind of culturally tone deaf for me. Mm -hmm. Anything to, to say toward that is you see some brothers kind of wrestling yeah. with the minutia, the minutia of frankly, what are Adiaphora like conversations? They're not they're not specifically targeted. And I could go down the line. I don't need to do mm -hmm. that. I can, we can keep it 30,000 feet. But you know, I think understanding where the pain points are, the felt needs of people and leading with like the law is there. That's another way to say it. I mean, mm -hmm. we're leading with the the law and it, it just it just people don't even know they're dead. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, we need to meet them like Jesus did with their felt needs and lead them to say, whoa, I got a lot of other felt needs. The law is going to do its work. And then the gospel is so, so good. But the multiple lenses or frameworks of sharing the gospel were very, very narrow. And I think that's to our detriment today in the culture. So I'm just agreeing with you, Matt. Anything, though, to say about Lutheran pietism? Yeah, I would say, I would say it's a symptom of the deeper issues we're facing, um, and and what I would say is our our real core problems. I'm going to say it's two or three. It could be more. Uh, number one, fear. Number two, comfort. Um, and number three, uncertainty. So we have become a very fear based culture in the LCMS for some reason. Um, we're afraid to do something wrong. So we're afraid to innovate because we're afraid to do something wrong. We're afraid of the changes in the culture and the fact that we don't understand them. And so oftentimes what happens in that sense, when you have that fear, um, fear kind of steals trust. So we have a low trust for each other, even though we're 
in a season where trust would be a much better virtue to put up. You know, we're mm-hmm. in we're in a very missional and a very innovative season. That's what's needed. That's not often what we experience in the LCMS. We experience fear. And because we experience fear, we have a lack of trust. So we don't trust the person across from us to preach the very simple things that we've been given. It's not complicated, guys, like really. And we lean into comfort, comfort in the sense of we we don't know what to do. So we stick with what we're comfortable with and we double down on what we're comfortable with when a different behavior would actually be better. Um, it's kind of like when you're, you know, I know you're a big fan of the Harrison too. And, you know, in the Harrison, you have these paradoxical traits. And so when you have a strong paradoxical pair, what it's saying is you have two, two traits that on the surface would look opposed, but you're able to lean into both whenever you need them. So like the example would be less is more that we always use when we're walking people through Harrison, right? You know, like you've ever been in a PowerPoint presentation where less would have been more like you get it like less and more (laughs) they're different, but they're paradoxical traits that pair together to really create a true strength. And so the problem in the LCMS is we're leaning into what we feel like is our strong trait, the thing that we're comfortable with traditional Lutheran liturgy, preach the way it's been preached and done the way it's been done for however many years, when in reality, we need innovation. But because we're not as willing to innovate because of our fear, because of our uncertainty, we lean harder into the thing that we're comfortable with, which we double down on it because we feel like we're doing something, even though what we're doing is not helpful or effective for the broader culture. And it's causing us to make major steps back. And so you could talk about the liturgy. You could talk about other issues that we face. It's the same issue that we're facing with some of the structures and systems that we have that served us well and aren't serving us as well now. And we don't know how to separate out celebrating what served us well for a season and innovating in a way that we need to, to be able to step into this new season. Um, And so it's a symptom when you're talking about leaning into the liturgy of deeper issues that we're not dealing with or addressing. Yes. Um, so at the local level, if something is not working to do the same thing is, is idiotic. It it just, there's something has to change. And because we have such a longstanding history and institutions and, and structures and, bylaws and all this sort of stuff. I get that it's super complex, but I don't, I don't hear in, in the wider LCMS conversation, many leaders who are connected to the institution. And I understand why this is from a systems perspective, because they're going to get beat down talking about anything that is risky at all. Yeah. Um, and it's very, if they, if they do talk about it, it's behind closed doors after a cocktail. Okay. I kind of agree with you, but I'm not, I'm not really going to say it's, it's totally a fear-based culture. Mm-hmm. It really, yeah. it really is. And it's, it's very unfortunate. The perfect love of Jesus casts out fear and um, yeah, we're, we're living with it. And then because of that fear, you're trying to control the very, very small things, which is not the gospel. You right. know, these things that we orient ourselves around are not, are not the gospel. They're, they're way more adiaphora. And so I'm just praying for guys that have, you know, and I've, I've been trying to Matt, have conversations. We'll get off this and move to some other stuff with your ministry, but I've been having conversations with guys that 
maybe think a little different than I do. And I'm trying to listen and learn and, yeah. and care for them. And, and they're great conversations. Let's just humanize one another and recognize we got different personalities. Really, that's all that it is. This is yeah. way more sociological, personality-based than it is anything deeply mm-hmm. spiritual or deeply theological. Anything to say that this is more sociological right now? This isn't the battle over 100%. the Bible right now, Matt, from our, our parents and grandparents' age. This is not what we're struggling with right now in the LCMS. It's way more sociological. Anything to say to that, Matt? Yeah, I would say that we're, you know, with the fear, with the anxiety, we're, we're just dealing with a high anxiety. And, and when you deal with that high anxiety and you don't take a second to just kind of cool down a little yeah. bit, mm-hmm. um, then, then you're going to have arguments and conversations that when you look back, you're like, man, that was kind of, that was kind of silly. That wasn't helpful. That wasn't fruitful. Um, and I think too, the other mm-hmm. thing is, you know, we're noticing the same thing you notice on a local level in, in a decline. So yeah, we're experiencing decline. The church as a whole is experiencing decline. The problem is we as a denomination are incredibly insular. Um, and so we don't like to hear from voices outside our tribe as the experts. Some people will hear from those voices and they'll bring that in, but we'll only hear from it when the trusted voice has brought it in and is talking about it. And so because we're incredibly insular, because we're dealing with high anxiety, because we're dealing with a fear culture, what we're experiencing is this kind of reality where we feel like we're the only ones experiencing this, right? When in reality, the church as a whole is experiencing a decline. You can look at books like The Great Dechurching just came out, amazing book looking at these you know, statistical trends and how you can approach them. But I think for the sake of our conversation, for the sake of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, I think what we need to realize is everybody's experiencing it. And we need to also recognize what some of those natural behaviors are during that that aren't helpful and healthy. Like, for example, everybody's going to try and grab their slice of the pie, right? So the reason we don't want to change the structure, the reason we are hesitant to innovate, the reason we're hesitant to try things is because certain sometimes people are holding on to their slice of the pie so tightly that they're afraid if they release the grip just a little bit, they'll lose it. Mm. And they're afraid of what they're going to lose over what they could gain. Um, and so, and that's, that's affecting us in a lot of areas that are pretty critical. And so you asked about what it's like living on the coasts. You're living in an incredibly post-Christian area. And there's a lot of these things that we've put in for good order, um, you know, and structure and the sake of structure that's very beneficial if you're living in an area where there's a, a Lutheran church on every corner or, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm living in St. Louis now. I drive past more Lutheran churches going to the church I attend than I drove past churches on the East Coast, <laughs> right? And yeah. here's the problem. We put all these different things in place and they become obstacles that we're tripping over, that we're trying to, to work around. And we've just forgotten that we're the ones that put it there and we could easily move it. It's like, it's like if you were sitting in your living room, right? And you had a couch in front of the door and you were complaining about why that couch was in front of the door and you're always trying to work around it. And eventually you start having conversations of literally moving the door. Why doesn't somebody just move the stinking couch? Like mm-hmm. you're the one that put it there. And now you're trying to do all these gymnastics to get around it when all you'd need to do is say, hey, that's probably not the best place for the couch. Let's move it over. 
let's move that couch. Let's uh, let go of that that pie. I'm thinking of a cherry pie right now. It's it's messy. It's between yeah. your fingers. It, no one wants to eat that, man. No one wants that. Like share the pie. There's a there's a huge pie right here. It's yeah. Jesus pie. Let's share the pie. Uh, quit quit hoarding it. And uh, uh, final final note in terms of the Harrison to land this land this plane. If if I could pray for one trait for for pastors, uh, synod leaders, it's the comfort with conflict and managing stress mm, well. Yeah, trait. And we don't handle managing stress is on a scale of one to ten. Average pastor LCMS, and this is a trend again outside mm-hmm. the LCMS, just yeah. pastors in general, is three point two. We don't manage stress well, and so when we're passively imbalanced and stress comes, oftentimes then we respond in very passive aggressive, uncharacteristic ways that leaves people kind of, you know, their mm-hmm. head is turning like, what is going on? This is very very strange, and we have. In general, the wider sociology and culture of the LCMS, we have institutionalized passive aggressive behavior mm-hmm. in the LCMS. And it's yeah. going to take some differentiated leaders who are strong in their identity. And I think you're one of these one of these leaders that can stay within the system and and challenge the system at the same time uh, for the system eventually, because it's the Lord's church. I pray the Lord and the Holy Spirit would work in just beautiful ways. For us to repent, for us to confess, for us to absolve, for us to move forward in the in our common confession of Jesus as as Lord. So, good stuff, yeah. man. Um, I love your heart for missions. I love uh, your your missional pathway has blessed us. Your how to read the Bible curriculum is uh, blessed. Our team is going to bless our congregation. Talk to us a little bit about your origin story of saying, "Hey, I." I could start to serve the the wider church. Some of the stuff that I've kind of implemented, starting churches, et cetera, yeah. could be a benefit to the wider church. So talk about missional pathway, how to read the Bible, your Kairos network. Yeah, I th- so Kairos network is really kind of a natural outbirth of something I thought I could never do, um, which was plant a church. And in that journey of learning how to plant a church, I got I got an opportunity to train with somebody that had planted. And to learn not just what they were doing, but why they were doing it. And then I started learning more about training. And after we planted our church, I was like, man, this really blessed me, benefited me. I bet there's other guys that are thinking about planting, could plant. And if we really want to see them plant, we've got to pour some of that into them. So I started uh, building out a training process and we started using vicars that were interested in planting. And we brought them out to our church and we trained about four church planters, three of them planted there. And then we jumped up to New Jersey because it was so post-Christian and they wanted to plant. And so actually stepping into a revitalization was more about training church planters and deploying church plants than it even was just revitalizing. And what I learned about revitalization is, you know, all the same skills you need to plant, you use to revitalize. It's the application that's different and the pain points that are different. And certain people gravitate toward different challenges. Ministry is challenging. So you'll hear people say when it comes to church planting, if you can do anything else, do it. And that's bad advice. Um, and the reason it's bad advice is because it's, it's neglecting the fact that ministry is hard and ministry is challenging, but there's different people that gravitate toward different challenges. And, and there's some people that would step into the challenges of church planting and it would be crushing to them and to their soul. And there's other people that would step into the challenges of taking over an existing parish and it would be crushing to them and crushing to their soul. And so when when it came to stepping into the Kairos network, it was just a point where my wife and I felt like 
we weren't living into our gifts enough. We were doing what somebody else could do better. Um, and, and we were, we were fighting with challenges and problems that we just essentially didn't care about. Like for lack of a better term, I think the thing that kept us in it so long was we had so many lost friends around us and friends that were disconnected from faith in the community. But it was really hard being in a situation where the care for the lost wasn't, wasn't as high um, as the care for what was going on in the church. And it was also really hard to be in a situation where there's lots of resources, but no, no vision for reaching the outside. And so we decided, and it was a really hard decision. My wife had started working again after nine years of being home um, with our kids. She'd stepped back into work and she had a job where she could get benefits and a job that uh, allowed her to go remote. And so we said, hey, let's let's try this network thing. Let's step back into planting and let's train planters and let's build the resources and stuff that that we would need to see this post-Christian area reached and and the ministry challenges reached. And one of the things we saw was one of the biggest assets we were leaving untapped was the average everyday Christian. And if we treated the average everyday Christian like a missionary and a gospel planter and a disciple maker, uh, ironically, like Jesus had always said we should, um, that, that we could really see traction and movement in the post-Christian church. So my wife and I made the hard decision to, to leave my call, to step down to zero salary, um, to leave all the benefits and all the fun stuff that come with being a, a Lutheran pastor and to try and launch out this network. And so over the last year and a half, that's, that's what we've done. And we've gotten to a place where I actually get paid to do this now, which is fun. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's built up, but I think in doing that process, what I learned was not only the opportunity to build some great missional resources that are able to help the local church, that are able to help church planters, um, that are able to help congregations innovate and think missionally, but also I learned what it's like to, to really risk for the gospel and to step out and plant something when you don't have as much backing, but you just believe in what you're doing. And so we had a few churches that backed us uh, a little bit um, when we stepped out and we used that to, to pay for the platforms and stuff that host the, the training. And, and we just stepped out and did it. And God's been really cool and blessed us and let us partner with cool people like Christ Greenfield and Florida, Georgia district and Iowa West and Texas and get to do mm. some really fun stuff and learn a lot along the way. Um, and so the missionary pathway you're talking about, was actually created as a way to train that average everyday Christian how to go out and how to make a disciple where they live, work, learn, and play. So how to share the gospel when somebody's not going to come into church. Because you talked about the liturgy thing earlier. You know the problem with the liturgy conversation and the community stepping in for the liturgy and trying to have this perfect liturgy that reaches the community is you're asking the lost person to be the missionary. Because what's a missionary do? A missionary is supposed to learn the culture, learn the context, learn the language to share the gospel. And so you're asking the lost person, it doesn't matter what your worship style is. You're asking the lost person to learn your culture, learn your context, learn your language to hear the gospel. And so what we did is we said, hey, we need to teach you how to be the missionary. And a couple crazy things happened from doing that. Uh, one, we started with like 18 people in two cohorts and now there's 337 in 17 countries 
there's second generation cohorts launched out after going so through cool. it one time. Like your church is a great example. You've got leaders that went through it with me one time and now mm-hmm. they're deploying it with people in their church. Mm-hmm. They're learning to think missionally. They're doing incredible things. Awesome. And it's just cool to see that happen. But the crazy thing is it also did two things. It allowed you to start training disciple makers without changing anything in your church. So you can step into a church that's already highly missional, uh, already doing great things, and you don't have to worry about what you're going to change to implement this. Um, but also you can step into a church that's really struggling, that's that's mm-hmm. married to programs they should have let go years ago, and and people that are very comfortable and set in their ways. And you can actually start implementing missionary pathway and you can change everything without changing anything on the surface. Um, and you can begin to train people how to think missionally. When people learn how to think missionally, then all these other questions get answered in a better way. You know, it's kind of like one of the big problems is not, you know, I know how to do all the mission and vision process stuff and build out leadership pipelines and do all this stuff. But what I've learned from doing all that stuff is that still at the core, your thinking will affect the end product. Yep. And so you can walk through the most expensive, most robust mission and vision planning process you can think of. And if your thought is magnet model church, how do we get in? That's all you're going to get at the end. But if you know how to think missionally, if you know how to think about making disciples and make disciples in the places you're already going, then when you walk through a process like that, your thinking's there. It's going to change everything on the surface. And you can apply that same problem to many of the issues that we're facing in the Senate right now. Like Mm -hmm. if we had a different framework, if we had a different understanding, if we saw the world around us, not as a threat, but if we saw the world around us as the missional opportunity that God's placed us in, then we would think radically differently about things. And we would want to start implementing things like this. And so that was the big step for us is we wanted to stop talking about it and we wanted to start doing it. And I wanted my kids to experience ministry where we were doing that and not just like hearing dad talk about ministry in one way and experience him doing it in another way. Yeah. Dude, you're weird, man. (laughs) This is what I've been told. (laughs) Yeah. It's a good weird. It's a good Lutheran weird, but weird nonetheless, because the amount of risk um, that you're capable of walking through, you know, the uncertainty of starting like very, very few pastors, um, have that sort of a, of a calling. I'm so grateful you're stewarding it. Well, one, one point of clarification. So when Matt talks about Kairos network, that's different than Kairos university <laughs> connected to the Luther house of study. There's a yeah. lot of time stuff going on right that's now. Right. Kairos meaning, meaning time. It, it is a time for more, more missional, uh, plans. So go, go back if you will, um, so people can help understand how weird, how weird you are, because yeah. some of your frustrations with the local church would not be the average pastor's frustrations with, no. with the local church, you know? So no, God just made you the, very, very unique. Talk about that. Yeah. That's probably the biggest thing I would highlight is, you know, I think it's, it's not to say the spot I was in was a bad spot, right? Like, I was in a very nice community. I got a good salary, benefits, all that kind of stuff. You know, it, the, the problem for me is my heart is just wired toward mission and I can't help but see, see what could be 
um, especially when you experience the challenges that are coming, because what you have to do is you have to think of post-Christianity as like a wave, right? And it's, it's starting on the coast, but it's moving in this way. And, and people in the Midwest are experiencing that now. They're not experiencing it to the level that you would experience it in the Northeast, but they're experiencing it. And so to be able to step in and help equip people across the country to learn how to do ministry in a way that will allow their kids to thrive in the faith is, is really exciting to me. And, and to be able to see new things launched out, I think probably, you know, the weirdness for me came from church planting and seeing just how many disconnected people can get connected to Jesus. If you're willing to step out and plant a church because churches that are planted, they're planted for the culture that is not the culture that was. Um, there are new things and people tend to gravitate toward new things and connect with new things. And they offer you the opportunity to experiment in healthy ways um, that will allow you to engage new challenges in, in gospel centered and exciting kind of, kind of formats. Yeah. Well, let's hang there for a sec, Matt. Um, I've heard people say, we don't need more churches. We got declining church. We don't even have enough pastors for our current churches. So why would we ever talk about, talk about church planting today? Yeah. So let's and take I think you. Yeah. Let's go there. Let's take St. Louis for an example. Cause St. Louis, yep. like, like you've pointed out, th- there's literally a Lutheran church on every corner. It's, it's the national headquarters. It's, it's got one of our two seminaries like here. It's got, Lutheran Hour Ministries, like there's so much Lutheran stuff headquartered here. Like I can't drive <laughs> to take my kids to something without seeing something Lutheran, right? Yeah, it's right. it's what we lovingly call the Mecca, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in the Mecca of Lutheranism, there's about two two 2.8 million people, if I'm remembering that number correctly, in the St. Louis area, right? Conservatively, if I was to use the most conservative statistics out there, about 2 million of those are disconnected from Jesus. Gee. 2 million. So let's take St. Louis where there's a Lutheran church on every corner. If we were to all of a sudden add 2 million people to our worshiping body, it would double the total number of Lutherans um, in, in our tribe period, I think. <laughs> yeah, and would. you would not have the capacity in our existing churches to handle that. And, and so I think problem is thinking, but see, most people aren't thinking that way. They're not thinking about the out. They're not thinking about the lost. They're thinking about their congregation, their church, their preferred styles of worship. And when they think about Lutheranism and they think about the number of Lutherans in St. Louis currently, then yeah, we've got enough churches. We can totally handle it. Uh, we're down a little bit because of the pandemic. So we could we could handle a few more of those Lutherans coming back. The problem is Jesus never called us to only take care of our own. That's that's why he looked at us and said, Go as you are going, make disciples. That's that's why the gospel was a message that went out, even when the disciples were saying, Hey, are you gonna are you when are you gonna come back and bring us back up? And and the people of Israel, he's like Stop thinking about that. <laughs> like, yeah. here's your mission. Here's your focus. Go do that. And people forget that that makes us radically different in the religious landscape as well. Because your Jewish neighbor does not have a mandate to teach you about Yahweh. 
Your Muslim neighbor does not have a mandate. Your Buddhist neighbor doesn't. None of these other faith groups do. Why is it that Christianity, the religion that's radically different than any other world religion, because God's coming to us and it's not making us guess how we're connecting with God. He's being clear. He's being incarnational. He's being contextual. Why is it that that weird religion is asking people to go out and share who Jesus is? And the problem is (laughs) we forget that. And we often, and, and this is terrible. We oftentimes we miss what Jesus said. So like our focus is how do I grow the church and bring people in so Jesus can make disciples? And I wonder if Jesus is sitting there going, what? Like Jesus told Peter on, on this statement, on the gospel, I will build the church. I will do it. Jesus, when he was saying I, he usually was referring to himself generally. Then he looks at us and he says, go make disciples. So like we're trying to do what Jesus said he would do. And we're trying to ask Jesus to do what he told us to do. And Uh, we're not focusing on our lost neighbor. Matt, this is, it's astounding that there is a debate around the clear proclamation of Jesus to multiply disciples. It's astounding that innovation and a deep care for those who will experience eternity separated from the promises of God. Like that's even a conversation in the LCMS. It's astounding Mm -hmm. that we're having uh, debates over liturgy stuff when people are are dying. God wants all of his kids back, Matt. That's why he sent his son. He wants all people to be saved. We actually believe that. And I mean, what you just flipped right there. We're, we're out of our lane. Our lane is discipleship multiplication. Yep. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is going to create and sustain faith. He will build the church. I think that, listener, go back, man. Your, your paradigm should have just been rocked. Our call is not necessarily to grow the church. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, grows the church. Our call is to incarnationally go just like Jesus did. Though imperfectly, obviously not not exactly like Jesus, but to go and sit with, love, care for, yeah. care for our neighbor. But how how countercultural is that? I got to share. I, I get across a, a culture here, Matt. Uh, my my next door neighbors for the last ten years are are Muslims, mm-hmm. uh, Ramin and Sunita, and we're we're building relationship. And and my wife Alexa and I get to go uh, to Sunita's uh, sister's very very orthodox. Muslim wedding next week and uh, men and women are separate. Um, But she, she goes, I know we're, I know we're different. And she even started talking about what's going on right now in in Israel and, and the hatred, you know, between Palestinians and Jews and even, even Christians. And she said to me with all transparency, this is the, this is the word of God on her heart. The word of the one true God that makes me sad. And we need to become closer as neighbors. And I'm like, why? I should invite you to, you know, like, <laughs> right? <laughs> I was, I was confronted. Like, man, I, I need to invite Sunita to a family, family wedding. So, so sweet. And um, so, yeah. I, but that's just so not in our normal, mm-hmm. normal way of being. Would you, would you help us understand? Let's go deeper into the conversation of felt needs. I mean, I've said publicly yeah. that the assault against the family. Right. Mm-hmm. And there is an assault against the the um, nuclear family today and, you know, the LGBTQ stuff. I mean, we we love to talk about that within kind of confessional conservative Christianity, not just mm-hmm. Lutheranism, but Christianity. 
Um, give us a better approach, maybe, than starting with those types of issues um, and, and almost like differentiating ourselves around what's going on out in culture. Give us the, yep. the missionary approach counter to counter to that. Yeah. So Paul said, Paul said, our battle is not against flesh and blood. That's right. But the spiritual forces. And I think the problem is, number one, we see our battle as flesh and blood. And, and we forget in our mandate, the way Jesus stepped into the world, I think we sometimes forget how offensive the incarnation must have been to God mm. because he's stepping into a world where if you think about it, like go back to temple theology, like there was a separation in the Holy of Holies. And the reason you had all these laws and all these distinct separations is because God, the perfect Holy God was trying to dwell with imperfect people. And if people came too close to the holiness of God, it was an offense and an affront to God. Now, Jesus comes into the world. He puts on human flesh. Um, he gives up his place. He steps into not just human flesh, but into the lowest form of human flesh, right? Um, is born in a manger, right? <laughs> is is fully dependent on another human being to care for him. Like, And then he loves us. And he hangs out with the people that you would not expect a religious person to hang out with. And he hangs out with people that are disconnected, that are living lives that are disconnected from God. But I think he does that because he realizes that he sees those things as a longing for what God always desired to give. Hmm. And so he represents them with the opportunity to have that. And they gravitate toward the more sinful, the more broken they are. They gravitate toward that. That's why you have prostitutes and tax collectors coming to faith, right? And I think the problem is sometimes we see the world around us. Like, let's take, uh, let's take same-sex attraction and um, the whole gender identity crisis stuff that we see, and we see it as an affront to what we believe and how I'm trying to raise my kids and what I'm trying to teach my kids, right? And the nuclear family. We forget that this is somebody that's crying out for meaning and purpose, and they're chasing it down in a spot they're never going to find it, right? Because just like in the Old Testament, they're, they're, they're making their wood idol, they're worshiping it, and they're using the other half of it to make their fire, right? And it's not, it's not going to get them where they need to go. And I think the problem is we've forgotten that everybody worships that everybody is trying to find this thing that only God can give. And so we see those things as an affront to what we believe because we don't understand how secure what we believe is. Like, mm. let me just throw this out there. Jesus died three days later, walked out of a grave. True. So like not even death can hold Jesus back. Book of Romans, it says neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things above, nor things below. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8. Yep. So if nothing can separate us, and if Lord we have God. this secure faith, why are we not living out of that security and then loving people where they are and giving them a better picture of who Jesus is, realizing that the Holy Spirit is the one that makes dead things alive? And so the Holy Spirit's giving you an opportunity to love the people around you in, in a radical way so that they can come to faith. And that was always the key point of how people came to faith. They were, they were loved into the faith. Loved into it. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, man. Uh, every time, 
every time someone comes up to Jesus and wants to justify themselves based on what they do, um, Jesus says, okay, go, go do that. Go try to figure that out. You know, the rich young ruler, um, yep. and, and they get crushed by it or they walk away mm-hmm. from, from Jesus. Yeah. Right. And I, I feel like sometimes we're trying to justify ourselves I, all the time. This is just a human condition, right? This is a problem of sin. Uh, the bell is ringing. Chapel is, chapel is starting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For, for well, and I think too, to your, to your point, we've forgotten where we started. Yeah. Like we assume they're so bad, but we forgot that we were dead before God brought us in. That's right. It's just most of us don't have a memory of that. Like I was baptized in my grandparents' living room because my grandma couldn't couldn't get to the church and my mom wanted to be mm-hmm. there, her to be there. And theologically, when I was baptized in that living room, I was dead and I came to life. That's and right. I had nothing to offer God. You know, and I think that's what's so cool about infant baptism is you've got this picture of God bringing you into the family of faith when you have nothing to give and nothing no nothing you could offer. Um, and I think so, we forget that and we, we start to think, oh, well now I planted a church and now I'm a pastor. And now it's like all these successes become our worst enemy to loving the people around us because we start to think that this grace was me. It's mm. because of what I could do that God brought me in. And we forget that I am loved when I do a lot and I'm loved when I do a little and I'm loved when I do nothing because of Jesus. Yes. I think the identity you've referred to it, but the identity conversation is a fantastic starting point yeah. to empathize with the, the person who's far from God. Um, Cause I recognize who I am apart from the love and mercy of God. I'm a, I'm a broken, fallen, miserable sinner, sin and thought, word and deed. Um, I'm very, very far from God. And so that should give us remarkable humility as we engage our pre-Christian neighbor. Bro, I have more in common with you, my Muslim neighbor, my Mormon friend, you know, whatever. I have more in common with you than I do a holy other God. Yeah. Right. I'm not, I'm not worthy to be in his presence. So we should just live in that wrestle. And there's, you know, there's brokenness, there's pain, there's suffering within and without, and I'm just trying to, to make it. And I realize I can't, yeah. I can't make it on my own. Right. And that's why, that's why God sent his son. Anything more to say there though, Matt? Yeah. And I would say it, when we grasp that, like uh, we release these mission insights every week and this week's mission insight was youth sports is not the enemy. It's the opportunity. And so like when we grasp that, that missional understanding, that, that missional identity that we have, that, you know, gospel identity we have in Jesus, then all of a sudden we stop seeing these things as an affront and we just start seeing them as our mission field. And, and we, because when we see like youth sports as the enemy to church, it's because they're not coming to church at the time we set when we wanted them there. But the problem is when we blast it, like we do. We're not going to affect the person that is already connected to youth sports and is already deep into hockey or soccer or baseball or whatever it may be. And they want their kids to get every experience because they think maybe they're going to go pro. You know, who we're hurting is the person that's already living in tension because church is a value, but they are trying to, to give their kids this experience. And then we're not taking that person and turning them into the missionary they could be. That would lead to people getting connected to Jesus in places they would least expect. We're making them angry. <laughs> yeah. What's going on? And, yeah. yeah. And we're forcing them, we're forcing them to, cho- we're, we're robbing the mission field of the missionaries. And, and Jesus prayed, mm-hmm. you know, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. And Jesus prayer wasn't, 
gather the few workers together and worship. His thing was send more workers into the harvest field, pray for more workers in the harvest. And I think we, we have to change our mentality, especially in the Lutheran church. We think about workers at this professional, professional level and we're robbing, we're robbing the world of this great theology because we're robbing them of the everyday missionary that could go out. I mean, that's, that's a ticket, man. I, I've been so astounded that I, I shouldn't be because it's, it's Jesus, <laughs> but I've been astounded at how many men and women there are in our congregation who one yearn for missional Lutheran theology, mm-hmm. the Missio Dei being at the center, my love for neighbor and the tension filled Lutheran confessional teachings that come out of the book of Concord, et, yeah. et cetera, obviously founded and rooted in the scriptures. Like they're there in, in our congregation. We got a, pre-seminary to seminary program right now with 20 some students in our, in our congregation, you know, and I don't think that should be unusual. I think that should be very, very normal. And they don't, and many of these people, Matt, they don't, they don't care about recognition and the benefits and all this kind of stuff. Now they just, they want to bring word and sacrament to their neighbor. They want to start house churches. They, I got a brother right now, man, that's starting a cowboy church in, and some of our pastors are going to be there and some of our vicars are going to be going to hang out. This is an Alpine while he's there. He's living on mission and he's, Mm -hmm. he, he made his whole third car garage into a worship space and, and they worship like 20 some people this last, and they're not a handful of them. That half of them were like pre-Christians. These are not, these are people that have lived intentionally in their community. And now they're inviting them to come and taste and see the goodness of God connected through word and sacrament. Like that's, that shouldn't be unusual. Well, and and unfortunately it is. Go ahead. When we stop seeing those things as a threat, what we realize is the opportunity they are because the one is not going to take away from the other. Right. And, and that was the reason it was really hard for us. That was the reason we made the missionary pathway platform free. Um, And when we made it free, uh, Trey and I, I wasn't making a salary. So I was like, "Mm, you want this thing that I'm spending 90% of my time working on to be free. I was like, my kids can't eat free. Right. But we just really felt (laughs) God was saying, no, we need to release these missionaries because we oftentimes forget that when we create other options for training in ministry, whether it's a missionary pathway, whether it's a Kairos university, and we create different price points for that, we're able to reach different mission fields. Cause guess what? Cowboy church, who's doing it in his third car garage, he needs a price point for ministry that fits the style of ministry he's doing. Because if we want to reach hard to reach places, if we Mm -hmm. want to reach different people groups, if we want to reach people that aren't white middle class, you know, uh, making a specific income, then we need to have different models for ministry and we need to have different pathways for ministry. And we need to, Mm -hmm. and I know I'll get myself in trouble for saying this. We need to honor them all equally because we're Mm. a body and you need every single part equally. I don't think that should get you in trouble, Matt. You never know. I'm surprised at the things that get me in trouble, honestly. (laughs) It just makes sense. It just makes sense. Dude, we could go on. I got so many. I don't think we even touched any of the questions I sent to you. This has been this has been so fantastic. How could people connect to Kairos Missional Pathway? uh, How to read the Bible? We didn't even get to how to read the Bible. That's an epic training that you have. And that's coming out in January. And that was through partnership with Christ Greenfield. And my encouragement to you would be work with the people that want to work and partner well because the Bible reading toolkit would not exist if it wasn't for Christ Greenfield and it wasn't for Trey Sansom and this willingness to be like, 
hey, Trey wrote this great ebook. Could we make it a course? Yeah. Can we help? Yeah. Hey, let's partner and do it. And now this thing's launching in January and it didn't take the same time that launching another course took because we partnered well. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'd encourage you like partner and work with the people that want to work partner. Well, if you want to find our stuff, go to the Kairos network.com. Um, you can find all our trainings there. Uh, it's missionary pathways there as well. And then if you want to see regular trainings, teachings, check out the Kairos network on YouTube or Instagram. Um, we've got all our stuff up there. We always do a regular, you know, teaching every single Monday that's free. Um, and of course there's tons of free courses on there, like Bible reading toolkits coming out in January. Um, you know, the, uh, missionary pathway. And then we have some other low end paid trainings, like preaching that connects and some of that stuff. Dude, Matt, I love your weird man. I'm grateful for you as my friend and, and partner in the gospel. You got a friend of me, man. Anytime we can collaborate and try to reach people with the gospel, creating content that's useful for missionaries being sent out where they work and play. And man, it's it's so, so good. This is lead time. Um, I pray that, listener, you're falling more in love by the power of the word and spirit with Jesus, um, with the God who says, you're mine. I love you so much that I sent my son uh, to make you mine. And that that fans into flame uh, a missional heart that says, they're they're my neighbors. And I, God, you love them infinitely more than I do. So just give me the right posture, the, the right, you don't even, not, not even the right words, that the Holy Spirit's going to give you the right words. But just the, I think it just starts with care. Help me care yeah. for them, um, to, to see them as a sheep without a shepherd who need you, Jesus, the, the good shepherd. And may it not be weird, Lord, <laughs> help me just be normal as I interact with them. And and I just want them to to meet and follow you, Jesus. Uh, there are people, if you're a pastor, there are there are people, whether you're a traditional confession, whatever, or you're starting churches, multiple, whatever. Where, there are people who are there that uh, that are ready to go. They just need to be yeah. shoulder tap and have the ICNU conversation. And if the Kairos Network or the Unite Leadership Collective helps you toward that end in some small way, man, we are we are most honored to God be the oh, glory. Yeah. It's a good day. Go and make it a great day. This is Lead Time. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. You've been listening to Lead Time, a podcast of the Unite Leadership Collective. The ULC's mission is to collaborate with the local church to discover, develop, and deploy leaders through biblical Lutheran doctrine and innovative methods. To partner with us in this gospel message, subscribe to our channel, then go to theuniteleadership.org to create your free login for exclusive material and resources, and then to explore ways in which you can sponsor an episode. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for next week's episode. The Unite Leadership Collective is excited to announce the launch of our new online learning platform. Whether you're considering entering into ministry or already leading, we have the resources that you need to become an empowered leader in your ministry. Our learning platform will release new courses every quarter with our first available course, Becoming an Engaged Leader, available now. But by joining our monthly membership, you'll unlock unlimited access to all of our courses and gain entry into our exclusive coaching community space where ministry leaders can connect with each other. This community also grants you access to bi-weekly coaching calls led by the ULC team, private Zoom calls, and additional team discounts. To celebrate the launch, we're offering introductory rates for all of our courses and the monthly subscription plan. Just enroll prior to January 1st using the code 
75ULC2023 to get 75% off at checkout. Visit the uniteleadership.org to learn more about our online learning platform and start your journey to lead effectively in any church settings today.